0: There are nearly 80 gigs of data in my head.
1: You're in the mainframe. It's eating to Greg's entire system.
0: Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick.
1: We're in. We're in. We're
2: in. We're in. in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Bella Deschamps-Cook.
3: And I'm Jeremiah Rowe. Today, we have an incredibly eye-opening interview with two people who've been talking about the cyber threat to the power grid and critical infrastructure long before it was making headlines. Andy Bachman and Sarah Freeman both work at the Idaho National Laboratory. Andy is a senior grid strategist who works at the intersection of grid security and resilience. Sarah is an industrial control system cybersecurity analyst who provides threat intel across the entire government and also helps critical infrastructure providers understand how to protect their networks.
2: We should also mention that they have a new book out called Countering Cyber Sabotage that's been getting a lot of praise from lawmakers and experts about how utility operators should be approaching security. We're really looking forward to getting into it. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsource platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 testing, Intelligence and vulnerability management from a global network of researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. And now, here are your hosts, Bella and Jeremiah.
2: Hey, Jeremiah, how are you doing?
3: Hey, Bella, how's it going? Uh, really looking forward to our guest.
2: So, welcome, Sarah and Andy. How how are you both doing today?
3: We're
4: great. Thanks so much for having us.
2: So we want to kind of jump in, talk a little bit about your book, which is called Countering Cyber Sabotage, which, by the way, is is kind of an intense title. I, I like it a lot. Um, so you've gotten really amazing reviews already. Uh, it's been called The Seminal and Game-Changing Textbook of Our Time and A Brilliant New Methodology for Defending Critical Infrastructure, which those are high highly like, very wonderful reviews. Um, so I want to start with sort of why you decided to write a book and what you hope this book achieves, uh, or like what you hope people get out of this book.
0: That thing about being the seminal and greatest textbook of all time, is that like all textbooks on all topics of all time? I mean, that's a bar so much higher than we were ever aiming for. Anyway, it sounds good, though. It sounds very promising. The, uh, the reason we wrote a book is because we had something to say. And then the second reason we wrote it is because our boss told us to in 2018, we covered this topic for the first time in a lighter format with Harvard business review. So many people happened upon that article and uh, the case study on cheese that was inside it, that Sarah, Sarah helped built critical cheese infrastructure that, um, I thought we were done. I thought we had gotten the early message out and, uh, We had said as much as we needed to for a national lab anyway. And then towards the end of uh, that year into 2019, our boss, whose name is Zach Tudor, he runs the National and Homeland Security Directorate at Idaho National Lab. He said, how's the book coming along? So from that moment on, this project with Sarah and I, gathering up things that we already do already, because we already sort of know a good good deal about it, uh, in a sense, enough to write a book on it. That's how it began.
2: So it sounds like the first time you published something related to this was, when, was in 2018. Obviously, that's a little while ago. I'm wondering, since you started talking about this topic, you know, cyber attacks on the grid, have utilities and critical infrastructure operators started to adjust based on this information or, or make changes?
4: Yeah, so the the earliest documentation actually goes back to 2016, but they tended to be kind of academic white papers and publications that were put out into the public domain, some of those initial writings are at a very high level, and some of them were written almost as guide documents as Idaho National Laboratory started to move into the first engagements. So it was important for us to clarify some of the things, to evolve it slightly. There's, there's lessons we learned throughout the process, and so that, that was what we were really hoping to codify in the book. In terms of how critical infrastructure owner owners and operators have evolved in terms of their security thinking, there's actually been a lot of events that have helped shape what we consider the mindset of today is. If you go back and you consider what people were talking about in 2013 and 2014, as the Havex campaign was starting to be discussed in the public space, there was a lot of not necessarily naysayers, but there was this expectation that the only reason why people would target critical infrastructure would be to steal intellectual property. That was the turning point i think so we had a there was a major event that happened in in 2015 that maybe you've heard of but when the ukrainian attacks occurred for a lot of people that was a a stark difference they woke up on the 24th and it was completely different day so in some ways i think that the book is just part of that larger evolution i think people are starting to realize that this is unfortunately something that is here to stay And, um, you know, it's so interesting, too, because we get a lot of questions now. Do you think it's more common? Do you think there's more attacks that are occurring? It's a combination. I think there were always attacks that were occurring. I think we're more sensitive to the fact that critical infrastructure is a target and it's targeted every day now. Um, But I think the other the other unfortunate reality is it's really difficult to be first, but it's not so difficult to be second. So as the threat actors have seen other threat actors pull off these attacks and be successful, there are definitely more players that are jumping into the pool.
3: Maybe you could provide some clarification for those individuals that may not know the difference between operational technology and how that relates to information technology.
0: Sure, sure. Um, we end up doing that a fair amount when we're on Capitol Hill. One of our, Sarah my and some of our colleagues' job is to give advice uh, advisory services to government leadership in different departments and committees and stuff on the Hill. And so uh, we usually start with assuming they too are not operational technology or industrial control systems, cyber experts. We'll start by talking about things that are more familiar to everyone. You know, I don't mean to oversimplify, but like, this is a mouse and um, that's the silver thing over here is a phone, a cell phone. And these things are computers that have memory, and uh, applications, and they handle data, and now they're all connected to each other. And so um, we spend a lot of time trying to protect sensitive data on those IT systems. I'll say, but a person in your position, it's perhaps even more important that you become somewhat conversant in uh, the other side of cyber. Instead of information technology, IT, it's OT for operational technology. And these are the computers and the networks and the software that control let's say, in the energy sector, things that make, manage, and move electricity, something goes wrong with those computers or that software, some bad up person comes in and misoperates them, the results can be rather catastrophic, economically or to national security or to personal safety. And the government has a major role to play in uh, overseeing and regulating, trying to coax the best possible behavior out of the companies that play in that market
2: so uh, I'm interested that you brought up sort of the government's role because I was hoping to ask a little bit about that. I think in my role and my experience with the the IT side, the of cybersecurity, I've seen a lot of debate about what the government's role is in sort of overseeing things, particularly in like the private sector of IT of you know cyber everything and i'm wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit on how that's different on the OT side and what the government's role is in kind of forcing regulation or mandating changes things like that
4: so one of the things that's really interesting about critical infrastructure protection IT versus OT in that that previous conversation and then if you look at the role of government is that the united states is different than a lot of countries because of the fact that our our Critical infrastructure is privately owned and operated in most cases. So we're already playing a kind of a different game from the government's perspective. And it's kind of interesting because Idaho National Laboratory is in this quasi neither public sector nor private. (laughs) But as a federally funded research and development center, we get to play with both parties and and we get to hear a lot of dare I almost say grievances (laughs) from both parties. These are really complex issues, and a lot of times people will come through and they'll just say things like, well, we're going to regulate cybersecurity. We're going to make sure that people are secure, and then we're going to regulate that you have to tell people when you have an attack or you have to share information when there's an event. And And these are um, things that definitely need to be done, But but it's almost – I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I think part of the problem is having a truly – holistic and beneficial feedback for both parties or both organizations. Um, and so there's a whole suite of people on both sides that are trying to make, make this a useful and meaningful relationship for both parties. But there's this other interesting thing that's that a lot of people don't really appreciate, but but the role of the government in cybersecurity is a little bit different than the role of the private sector or the asset owner in cybersecurity. So you'll see it most starkly I think if you look at cyber forensics after an attack occurs usually what happens is there's a bunch of people are running around who want to know exactly how the attack happened so they can make sure it never happens again. They want to make sure that they've mitigated the risk, they've made, you know, they've patched any holes they have and they can move forward from there. At that point though the government is actually most interested in who conducted the attack. And because of that, that that's primarily because that's where their their follow-on actions, you know, they they play in that more in that space. But the fact that there's two parties here and they have differing interests is is a core uh, issue that that uh, if you look at why there's disagreements or miscommunications, a lot of things come back to that. So the data that the government thinks is useful <laughs> isn't necessary, and they're sharing to the private sector isn't necessarily useful, and vice versa.
0: In one sector, I'll I'll try to use that as an example and allow folks to make inferences into other sectors, the ones that they care about the most. It is a a special one because it's the only one that really has heavy duty mandatory security controls. And that's the one that Sarah and I are most closely connected to. Although there's so much interdependency now between sectors, it's almost absurd to focus on just one and pretend that that that's the only thing that matters. But so in the electric sector, the way government plays in the United States and more broadly in North America, is for the higher voltages, that's transmission, things that move hundreds of miles at a time on long, tall lines, large generation and control centers, and some of the big substations that step up or step down the voltages. That uh, falls under the purview of, and I'm not going to spell acronyms, but I'm going to try to not use too many of them either. But so that falls under FERC and NERC, to um, both issue and then audit and enforce these mandatory security controls called the NERC, Critical Infrastructure Protection Standards. Everybody grumbles about them. Uh, do we have to do that? We could be more secure if we had our own choice, if we had our own freedom to do it. I bet we would do it. But um, the government was concerned they wouldn't do it. And this is in the post 9-11 uh, period where we were worried we could get blindsided by other directions uh, that we hadn't thought of before, the old failure of imagination. So that eventually begat these NERC, critical infrastructure protection standards, and the uh, big utilities and some of the smaller ones have to demonstrate compliance with them. And most people say it has significantly improved the level of cyber hygiene in the, uh, in the sector Although then other folks will say, never confuse compliance with actual security. And I believe that's true, whether you're in IT, OT, or whatever sector you're in.
4: Government moves slowly. Perhaps you've noticed this. And so by the point in time we put these regulations into place, they're usually reactive. They're responding to a, a past event. That's not to say at some point that that's not a useful tool the government should use. It is, and they do. The problem is we want to be more proactive in how we get ahead of some of these cyber attacks.
0: The other part of regulation of the electric sector, we left off with NERC. It's part of DOE, DOE FERC, and NERC is a corporation that's charged with enforcing, uh, crafting and developing and enforcing these mandatory regulations for the transmission level, bulk power system, it's called. But below that, and what's feeding all of us right now in our homes or if you're in your office and almost wherever you are is distribution level voltage. And that's stepped down and it's the things that get you from the long distance transmission to the towns and the cities and the, the businesses and the, the houses that we live in. The federal government doesn't have purview over that. So check this out. The people that are supposed to make sure that stuff is also as cyber secure as possible are the state public utility commissions. All 50 states have a PUC. Sometimes they call it something different. And um, they're made out of people who are generalists uh, in, and sometimes expert in other categories like uh, natural gas and water and communications and finance and stuff. But cyber is a new thing for them. Some of them have no one who's ever said the C word out loud. Others have one or two, but they themselves are immigrants from something that they were doing just a couple of years ago. And they are the... They are the oversight for distribution level cybersecurity of electricity, which some will say is the most critical of critical infrastructures. So you've
2: talked a little bit about like different areas of focus, depending on the different entities and different entities with different like regulations and things like that. I guess I'm curious, is there one central thing that you would recommend utilities change or like start or stop doing that could help with security?
4: you would be surprised how many organizations do not have dual factor authentication enabled. It's a lot. And that doesn't stop every attack from happening, but it it definitely cuts out a lot of the less successful, less good attackers, which, you know, is better than nothing. I think that if people are already doing that, then, and a lot of organizations are, um, especially in the sector that, that Andy was talking about, it's important that people are aware of what, threat activity is present today, like how attackers are using the environment to their advantage. So a lot of times you're talking about active directory attacks because we're fundamentally looking at windows environments, but, but whether it's active directory or something else, you have to understand how the attacker is going to not just gain access to your networks, but ultimately gain access to the accounts that are the most valuable. So where are those crown jewel accounts? And so that is a thing that we, we really try to encourage that people actively watch out for. When we were training people after the attacks in Ukraine, one of the things and and even coming back trying to take those lessons here to, to the US, it was interesting how many people weren't um, empowered to make timely security decisions and so we really want people to not just say okay these are the phone numbers you call when you get hacked you know these are the managers you have to inform but like really give people the opportunity to respond quickly in those environments because the organizations that respond within you know something like with the power being cut off within that 30 45 minute window their event is is much less devastating
0: One of the best things you can do to be empowered to make decisions is to have a governance structure that supports this. In the early days of cybersecurity, the most senior person with the word cyber in their name was a former network administrator, way, way, way down in the bowels of IT. This person couldn't do a damn thing without begging for permission from junior managers and stuff. At one point, all of the CEOs of the big utilities were gathered together by DHS, I'll just say a few years ago. And some of them admitted they never even met their, their head security person. They wouldn't know their name. They wouldn't recognize if they ran into them in, a, in the street. The governance message I've been saying is to create a position in charge of IT and OT, cyber and physical, and uh, get them up near the CEO in the C-suite. Get them out of the CIO world whose job is to create new projects because sometimes they could have conflicts. And so the most senior person with the word cyber in their title, ideally, is at least at the VP level. And we're starting to see more and more of those. And again, caveat, not because I was saying they should. I think it's because the world's making it clear to people and boards are getting educated too. That person needs to be somewhat proximate to the CEO and the board and have lunch with them and uh, brief them regularly and have a nice two-way flow of information and, and the rapport that enables that to happen. That's the governance angle. The other uh, response uh, to the question, Bella, is what would you do if you decided to do one or two things? Or sometimes people say, if you had only, if you had a million dollars to spend on cyber, what would you do? Or one dollar? I like the uh, our friends at the SANS Global Cyber Training Institute, and, uh, and in general, and then particularly their ICS cyber practice. It's just uh, they're just amazingly great. And um, if you look at the SANS Top 20, which also goes by some other names too, other organizations, but they all basically start like this. All 20 things, you got to do all these things perfectly all the time, never make any mistakes and just keep doing them forever. Um, Number one is uh, inventory, asset management. Another way of saying it is know what you have. Another way I say that is how can you secure what you don't even know you have? And guess what? In industrial companies and maybe everyone, but I'm just talking about the ones that I know better, they don't know what they have. They don't know what they have. Sometimes they'll ask their suppliers, do you know what we bought from you? And then the suppliers will look around going, ah, it looks like you bought this. And then there's some kind of dialogue there, but it's definitely imperfect to say the least. So there are tools out there now and there's new imperatives to find out what you have, what you operate, what you depend on.
3: There's some other interesting things that, that were uh, brought up recently uh, in the conversation. Sarah, you mentioned them as well. You've kind of alluded to multi-factor authentication in ukraine there's some interesting things that happen around that i know you both sort of have spent a lot of time picking apart the ukraine uh, cyber attack on the infrastructure that was over there in the power grid maybe you could speak a little bit more in depth about that
4: sure so in december 2015 there was an event um it's it- it was an attack against three distribution entities over there, which are in the Ukrainian energy infrastructure referred to as Oblin if anybody needs that for a trivia question at some point in the future. Essentially, what happened though, they had been breached previously, uh, and there's some debate about this. There was at least one spear phishing campaign that predated it around the March timeframe, but there was also a spear phishing campaign that went. Um, Going on the entire year before that. So it's, it's a little unclear when when the compromise occurred. But for most people, they look at that March date and they say after that point, the actor had free reign to maneuver through the networks over a, you know, depending on who you ask, six, nine, 12 month window. So during that timeframe, um, they, they prepared an operation, a cyber attack that was frankly grotesque in some aspects. It was completely manual. They essentially accessed through the, the equipment that had already been set up, the networks that had already been in place, the hardware that was already in position, all that stuff that was there for normal operation of those distribution networks, they uh, targeted it and they accessed it. And then they use those connections to open breakers. In most cases, although it looked a little different in every case, but in most cases, just using the engineering workstations that the operators themselves would use. So just that normal GUI, so just that graphic user interface and just clicked on the boxes and there you go, they cut power. Because again, the whole system is set up to operate in that way. There was, in, in one instance, there there was a situation where the, they were actually VPNing into certain assets and then controlling the grid. Um, <laughs> but there was, it was like a, a very, very large number of VPN connections. So as soon as that operator, that uh, that Oglin Ergo realized that was what was going on, they they obviously severed. Those connections, so they weren't allowing the VPN connections in. But uh, it, you know, it it was a turning point, not just because it was an attack against critical infrastructure, but it was also a turning point because I think we we like to put on our, you know, these I guess our superhero capes as defenders or something here, and and you always want to think that your your mortal enemy is is like spectacularly awesome, you know, they have to be your arch nemesis, and. This was like not that, but it was still hyper successful. And so it really, you know, there's a crisis of confidence that occurred. I mean, even at Idaho National Laboratory after this, because we'd been talking about certain things and and what sophisticated looked like, and this was not that. And suddenly we're like, oh shoot! I mean, I, we may have completely misjudged misjudged the attacker, but also how effective the attacker could be with such such little resources. And what they were, um, the elegant portion of that attack was actually the coordination among multiple humans. And so to be able to conduct that in a near simultaneous fashion, uh, they definitely spent some energy (laughs) and and, uh, were in a lot of meetings prepping for that thing. So however they did that, that, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, but yeah, it's, you know, it's a it's a hard lesson, but it's one that keeps on coming up. I'm sure you've heard about ransomware lately <laughs> if you if you weren't already familiar, that's a problem. But again, it's just a, it's a horrifically it's like the most basic kind of attack. It's so unfortunate that I mean, we don't have a great solution there. Everybody wants to know what the what the fix is. There's not a great fix and it's so stupid. it's so basic, but it's so effective and and yeah, it, those are. Those kinds of attacks tend tend to be a little bit like sucker punches (laughs) if you're trying to be the superhero master defender of critical infrastructure.
0: This is a golden age for cyber attack. And uh, lest I come across as promoting it, ransomware is just a tremendous business. Don't go, don't do it. Don't encourage other people to do it, but it's not going to go away. It's just a tremendous model where you can make lots of money with no risk. People are going to keep doing it. It's going to keep getting more sophisticated. As Sarah was saying, the uh, 2015 attack on Ukraine was uh, a lot of heavy lifting, though it wasn't a lot of sophistication like a supervillain. 2016 in December, they kept doing these pre-Christmas things, not very nice, was much more sophisticated. Crash override is the name of uh, attack you can look up. In the case of the uh, first one that Sarah touched, they both had an impact that was relatively similar in that Hundreds of thousands of people lost electricity for several hours. The one in 2016 touched one transmission substation and uh, did the same thing. And uh, it was automated, so you didn't have all these people involved pulling switches. The software did the job once it was crafted.
3: There's some interesting aspects about about the first one in 2015 that I think were touched on in a different context a little bit right so one of them was was multi factor authentication because you know had they been using multi factor authentication during that attack that would have thwarted you know a number of their attempts in in manually navigating the graphical user interface because that's they they weren't employing those basic countermeasures that we look at today are are instrumental in any sort of technology based system you know, you want to have these basics in order first before you move forward. And then the next aspect was, I believe, during that time, they also had the ability to rewrite some of the firmware in those substations as well, right? Which put them down to a much greater capacity, even after they were operational manually, after the fact, right? And so how does that compare with the US uh, in some of our power grids and power facilities, is this something that, that we may or may not be susceptible to? If someone were to go about perpetrating an attack similar to this in the U.S., how would that affect us in a different capacity?
0: But basically, the first thing I would want to ward off, and, and this gets spread on TV and social media, the idea of take down the grid. Just as there is no air gap, there is no take down the whole U.S. grid. I mean, unless the sun explodes or that thing under Yellowstone, the caldera goes off, but that would take down the grid. But through cyber means, um, there's havoc that could be caused in various pieces and parts of it. But because it's almost like the voting, when you talk about, when you talk about the, going after the voting systems, there's, there's enough diversity and different configurations and weirdness that it's extremely inefficient in one way, but that diversity can protect you too. And so I think uh, that's that's as far as I'm going to say. The only other thing I would say was there is no one standard of uh, maturity or competency among in any sector, including the electric sector. So you'll see some that are real exemplars and you'd be proud to say you were part of that organization from a cyber defense point of view. And there's others.
4: Yeah, Um I guess the first thing I'll say just to <laughs> to kind of go back st- slightly to my previous point, you know, the funny thing about that firmware overwrite was it wasn't even, <laughs> they were just, it wasn't an elegantly crafted packet. They just like literally overwrote the thing. They didn't make any changes to change the functionality, but it's fine. It's fine. It's just, <laughs> and the security on the device probably could have been better, but um, it's, it's. You can't talk about that without <laughs> breaking into laughter. Well, because the thing is. It's such
0: a. It's such a comedic uh, attempt at uh, cybersecurity. No,
4: no, not the, that's not the thing I'm laughing at. I I think it's actually a funny attempt at a cyber attack, (laughs) which just probably means that I will, you know, maybe regret those words. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just um, I think it's really important that people, I think there's, there's a lot going on right now with attacks and it's very easy to fall into the dark hole of despair and think that, You know, these are the world's most sophisticated criminals or something. And it's it's I think that there are those people out there and we need to be clear about who they are. But we shouldn't be bestowing those titles on people who don't deserve them, because I think one of the biggest problems we're trying to combat. I mean, there's like for so many people, because cyber is such a complex issue um, and people just don't feel comfortable in that domain at all. And so, I mean, I don't like taxes or cars. And so if you try and talk to me about my car or taxes, I like get, I break out into hives. So there's part of what we're trying to do with this book and part of what Idaho National Laboratory has been doing long before the book is to try and take out some of that uncertainty. Um, If you can get rid of that uncertainty, then people aren't as fearful to address some of these things. And it, it seems like a more manageable problem. But at the same time, a key part of that is recognizing where sophisticated actors are and where they're not if you just say everybody is the most sophisticated attacker of all time then the problem is it's it's almost too big of a problem to start dealing with so um i'm actually trying to <laughs> promote that these more realistic assessments of capabilities i'm going to get t-shirts made it's going to be awesome but um this kind of big game hunting but i want to hunt the hunters. So we'll, we'll see if I am successful in some ways. But yeah, it, it's really easy to, th- to read those descriptions. And um, some of them in the press, for example, have been really probably over exaggerated. There were lots of amazing things about that attack, but not everything in that attack was amazing. So, yeah, I think it's important to have those those differentiating features. But, you know, it's interesting because you talk about this is something that came out of it immediately, in fact, was what can the U.S. If the United States electric grid was attacked in this way, what would our response and recovery plan look like? There was actually a set of substations that were not successfully attacked. <laughs> they weren't successfully attacked because they were not connected. There was no remote connectivity to those that substation equipment. So there was no way that they could remotely control it and and cut off power. So it is illogical to say things like at at some level, I should qualify everything I'm saying here. The more manual the system is, the harder it is to hack. That is a true statement. The problem with making everything simpler is that you lose some of the engineering efficiencies that have been gained through the technological evolution you know, there's there's a reason for everything um, I've learned working with engineers, <laughs> and they've thought about it. I mean, they've spent hours thinking about what I would consider very minute and not relevant to my life details, but they've spent a lot of time developing these systems to make them as resilient as possible, um, to make them as efficient as if possible, to to ensure that there's a reliable source of power and the utility is making money and is capable of simultaneous controlling multiple devices. So every single time when there's a reaction that there's a cyber attack, now we have to make things more secure. And the reaction is, okay, we're going to take away connectivity or we're going to take away that smart device. I just caution people to think about what the outcome is of some of those those changes. Andy is also correct in saying that we're a very big, uh, the the United States electric grid is interesting because there are so many participants.
0: I just got off a call with a think tank and we were talking about a DOE program, which people can Google called Cytrix, C-Y-T-R-I-C-S. And um, it's uh, basically a uh, program involving multiple labs, the Department of Energy itself, some of the big household name suppliers, of industrial equipment, all of it's smart industrial equipment, all of it connected and beautifully accessed by, for remote diagnostics and all that. And um, what happens is these, um, these systems are identified sometimes by government, sometimes by asset owners themselves, large utilities, and then sent to Idaho or sometimes to one of our sister labs. And um, they basically are given a biopsy, basically opening it up and going, what's in there, hardware, software, firmware, we also do a provenance check and where did it come from to the extent that that can be determined, especially tricky with software, but it can be done to a certain extent and we do it. Then the team looks for something naughty in there, things that were intentionally or unintentionally, but dangerous to the people that own them because it could allow someone else to uh, take, take over operation of those things. And uh, finally, some of that is informed by our connectivity with the intelligence community, things that they're seeing. Do they play a role in what we're finding in, in that particular box? That information, those learnings, those findings, then go back out to the community, both to the suppliers, like, hey, we found these things in, your, in this version of this box. You might want to fix the high severity ones real fast. You might want to change all of it for your next iteration of this product that does this function. And um, so they learn. The government learns what's weak and what's strong about that particular product and uh so don't the asset owners. they need to know the thing they bought. What do they need to do to help it become more secure?
3: That's awesome. I personally love that. Um, I know that there's some other initiatives that you know the doe and and others within the governmental space are are doing to to really make steps towards hardening these devices and doing what's right and, and addressing the basics. You know, I believe that there's even um, an event that Idaho participates in called the cyber fire event and inside of the cyber fire event. One of the big uh, things that they try to push and work on are something that you very much touched on there, Andy, which is, you know, testing out these, these industrial control systems and fleshing out any sort of potential vulnerabilities that might be there. Where do they come from? what ways could an attacker address or target these things from a memory perspective or enumeration perspective? So I I, I love that you addressed that. Um, and and tying that back into sort of the book, right, in, in addressing these methodologies and how these things could be looked at, I was wondering if you could maybe briefly touch on consequence-driven, cyber-informed engineering and how that layers into these things.
0: The primary reason it was... Uh, created, which is different than why it was the book written. We did that. But why is the methodology was created? Because we saw our colleagues past and present, including Mike Asante, who has a big role in the book, noticed that almost no matter what we do using this strategy of hope and hygiene, certain adversaries are going to get in and certain adversaries are going to stay in in a stealthy way and learn about everything and uh, potentially have their way with us. And we were, we were incrementally improving every year. And the adversaries were improving in a non-incremental, meaning much faster way. The gap between the offense and the defense was just getting untenable from a national security point of view. So we look to engineering first principles rather than just throwing more products, more security products at the problem. Those things, by the way, are necessary. And we try not to come across as don't worry about you know, proper uh, cyber posture and hygiene, do all the things that you do every year and do them the best you can and add new technology when it seems helpful. But on the back end of CCE, after we've prioritized by consequence the things that could kill your company or kill your military mission, on the back end are uh, engineering mitigations and protections, fail safes and stop gaps that would keep, that do keep, uh, large capital intensive Uh, equipment upon which our civilization depends, or at least that company depends, keep them from killing themselves. The first person to go through a CC engagement in a pilot form a few years ago was uh, Florida power and light. And the CEO came up to Washington and told uh, a group gathered there. And we say, I think we reprise this in the book. He said, "Um, I can handle disruption. We're in Florida. We have hurricanes passing through all the time. We have nothing but disruption sometimes. What I can't handle is destruction of long lead time to replace capital equipment. If I'm going to lose a bank of large generators or transformers that I'm not going to be able to replace for months on end, then that's kind of the end of my company and kind of the end of Florida from an electricity point of view, from a national security, energy security, public health, and just so that, you know, um, zombies don't break out. We have to make sure that those things cannot happen. And CC is designed to make sure that the absolute worst things cannot happen. A marketing firm is starting to play around with this and calling it catastrophe prevention as a category. That's what it's for. And one last thing is, you know, our first target is the best. Sarah keeps referring to them, but we'll call them top tier adversaries, the most capable, the best resourced. But as Colonial points out, sadly, And uh, as the first Ukraine pointed out, sadly, it doesn't take the very, very best to create grievous harm and and disruption and chaos to us.
3: And when we say colonial, we're talking colonial pipeline, right?
0: Yeah, colonial pipeline. We we wish that really good cyber hygiene and best practices and conformance to standards would protect against that. Uh, But it's becoming somewhat apparent that you probably want to make sure that you have some engineering processes in place to protect against even... Uh, lesser, lesser talented adversaries who work their way into, certainly into IT and who are getting precariously close to crossing the DMZ into OT.
2: Um, And I have a question about sort of um, cybersecurity in general. I think there's been, uh, I see, especially what all the things that you've talked about with CCE, this need to shift to that, like, uh, it it kind of reminds me of threat modeling in, in other cybersecurity areas, this idea of like, let's enumerate the possible, Things that could go wrong ahead of time, and I've seen a bit of that shift in other areas of cybersecurity. And I'm wondering if, you know, the whole of cybersecurity making that shift is that important for um, specifically ICS
4: threat modeling, uh, threat enumeration, attack trees, all analysis. That's I mean, there is a huge focus of that now in cybersecurity. There has been for a few years, but it was important to address it, try to bridge the gaps specifically into engineering domains, because believe it or not, in a lot of engineering domains, there was cyber, it was tacked on after the fact, like they made the the purpose, there was a lot of um, the system was designed and engineered for a specific purpose, but at the end of the day, the cyber portion of it, these were add ons, and, and there's actually a ton of systems that are still in operation where there was no, um, it, the cybersecurity wasn't there when they first started with us. So there was no cybersecurity because it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't digitized. So it's it's kind of mind blowing if you look at it, but there's, um, but it's important that, you know, we talk about the differences between IT and OT, but just like the difference between cybersecurity and threat modeling, all of this stuff really needs to be merged. Because what we don't want is, people to say, oh, those are just the OT cybersecurity professionals over there. You know, the problem is cyber is here to stay and everybody needs to take a part in this security process.
3: Uh, So really, we want to highlight you, your views and some of the things that you all talk about in the book. So if you could just let us know how um, our listeners could learn more about you, find more about your book and where we can hear more from you specifically.
0: The uh, book is uh, fairly easily easy to, to Google, Countering Cyber Sabotage, should pull, pull you at least into the uh, Amazon site. And the uh, publisher is CRC Press Rutledge, so they have it on their site. Taylor and Francis, I mean. And um, there is a website the Idaho Lab maintains for CCE. It has a surprisingly simple URL. I would expect it to be horrible. It's uh, inl.gov slash CCE.
3: Awesome. And then one last bit Uh, something that we could know about you that we wouldn't necessarily find in your LinkedIn profile, something unique, something that that would, would say, this is me.
4: So I actually am really interested in chasing eclipses, solar eclipses, but I'm pretty sure there's a photo on my LinkedIn profile. So people are probably like, wait, why is that there? You know, she doesn't work in space. Anyway, that's, that's why that's there. Um, so I, I'm really interested in astrophotography, but not very good at it.
0: So I have a, a business one and a personal one. The business one is I'm starting to merge uh, cyber defense of critical infrastructure with defensive infrastructure against climate physical risk, uh, an increasingly, increasingly angry uh, Mother Nature is starting to throw stuff, heavy duty stuff at infrastructure. And I'm interested in keeping it working uh, long enough so we can solve all the other problems too. The personal thing is that I was once a conga drummer for an African women's dance group in Denver, and they made me a dashiki, and even then I didn't quite fit in, uh, but I kept I kept the rhythm reasonably well.
3: That is awesome. Andy, Sarah, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you all so much. It was great. Do you know which industries are most hardened against cyber attacks? How does your sector stack up when it comes to finding and fixing vulnerabilities? Are you doing enough to ensure you don't lose your customer's trust? It can vanish in an instant due to a breach or a cyber attack. Synac's 2021 Trust Report is your essential guide to understanding how industries measure up when it comes to security preparedness. Download it today at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K k.com.